these laboratory tests and these brain imaging tests are important because so many people that have uh, that are believe that they are electrosensitive they go to their physician and he refers them to a psychiatrist there's a general sense in the medical profession that this is not a real disease welcome to the metagenics clinical podcast where natural healthcare practitioners can hear innovative cutting edge information from leading experts from around the world. Welcome to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Rose, and with me today is Professor David O. Carpenter. David is a well-renowned expert in environmental health from the State University of New York and has generously agreed to share his considerable knowledge about electromagnetic hypersensitivity and other environmental intolerances. Welcome along, Professor Carpenter. Can you please tell us a little bit about yourself? I have a public health physician. I uh, went to medical school at Harvard Medical School. I did a lot of research on the brain for a number of years before really moving officially into public health. I was the director of the uh, New York State Health Department laboratories for five years, and during that time had a major role in creating the School of Public Health as a collaboration with the, the health department and the, uh, the university at Albany which is part of the state university system. So I served as dean for a number of years. uh, And then when I stepped down, I became the director of the Institute for Health and the Environment, which is my present role. I got involved in EMF when I first came to Albany uh, because there was a question of whether there were adverse health effects from high-voltage power lines. And I was put in charge of administering a research program on that subject Uh, which we did and concluded at the end of it that, yes, there were some health effects of power lines, that it was the magnetic field, wasn't exclusive to high-voltage power lines, but it was electricity in general, and that uh, at least uh, children exposed to high magnetic fields were at elevated risk of developing leukemia and possibly other cancers. Once you touch a controversial subject like health effects of electromagnetic fields, you never escape. And so, although it's never been my personal research, I've been involved in uh, committees and panels and editing books and so forth yeah. ever since. Yeah, right. So when, when was that leukemia research? Well, the, uh, the, this Power Lines project ended in 1987, and it was really uh, the first replication of a 1979 study that argued that children were more vulnerable to cancer if they were exposed on a chronic basis in their home to elevated magnetic fields. In that case, it was from neighborhood distribution electric lines, not high voltage power lines. Okay, interesting. So yeah, you sort of fell into it for want of a better term and you've um, been involved in this space ever since. So, And I've noticed you've published more recently, particularly with, uh, if I get his name pronounced correctly, Dominic Belpom uh, from France, uh, spearhead a lot of this recent research. So today I wanted to talk to you about uh, electromagnetic hypersensitive syndrome, hypersensitivity syndrome versus frank EMF, I suppose, toxicity. So can you just differentiate between those, first of all? Well, uh, the strongest evidence for harm from uh, electromagnetic fields is almost certainly with regard to cancer. Uh, but the electromagnetic hypersensitivity syndrome uh, has really gotten much more attention recently, although it's got quite a long history. Uh, the syndrome consists of very nonspecific symptoms. Headache is a dominant one, uh, ringing in the ears, fatigue, a sense that your brain isn't working quite right, which is usually called brain fog. And uh, this syndrome actually dates back to uh, a number of years ago when military people, primarily in the U.S., but also in other countries, were unintentionally exposed to radar for uh, periods, relatively short periods of time and developed all those symptoms that I've just described, but they didn't go away. And even after three or four years, these people had chronic headaches, uh, photophobia, they couldn't stand bright lights, they were weak, they felt their brain didn't work properly. Uh, then in the height of the Cold War, 
the Soviets irradiated the U.S. Embassy in Moscow with microwaves. And uh, at that time, the Soviet Union had much more stringent uh, requirements for uh, protection against health effects of microwaves than the U.S. did. And uh, everybody got quite anxious because they th we thought that they knew something we didn't. But while there were studies of cancer incidents in those employees in the, in the Moscow embassy, uh, many of the people developed these symptoms of headaches, ringing in the ears, fatigue, brain fog. But those were all passed off as being due to anxiety. And some of it may have been. But recently, there's been a growing, almost an epidemic, of people of all ages uh, that are developing these symptoms of headache, fatigue, brain fog, ringing in the ears, and are ascribing the, the development of those symptoms to exposure to radio frequency or power line frequency electromagnetic fields. Now, uh, there have been a number of publications where these people have been brought into laboratories and tested to see whether their symptoms really were due to exposure or whether they were totally psychological. If you count the numbers of publications, most of them have not shown that people could objectively distinguish when fields were on or fields were not on. However, there are some very significant limitations to those studies, and there were a couple of other studies that do show that individuals can, uh, st in a statistically significant fashion, determine whether the fields are on or not on, because they get headaches or they get fluttering of the heart. Uh, now, there are many things we don't understand about this syndrome. Does it take a very intense exposure for a brief period of time, as is the case with these radar operators that I mentioned? Or is it a high exposure at a lesser intensity over longer periods of time that causes someone to become electrosensitive? Uh, what we see with most people that I, I meet today that are complaining of this syndrome have that story. You know, they they uh, used a cell phone intensively for a long time, and then suddenly they began to get a headache from using it. Uh, or they lived in a building that had very intense Wi-Fi. Or in the case of children, they went to a school that had a Wi-Fi computer classroom with 20 kids or 30 kids on wireless laptops, and they began to get physically ill with these nonspecific symptoms after that time. So the problem with these controlled studies done in, uh, in experimental settings is that often they uh, gave only a background exposure for a period of time and said, do you feel bad? Or that they, there was no exposure and, and, they were, and the subject was asked to distinguish between exposure on or exposure off. Uh, but it was for a confined period of time, and it was not at a very high intensity. Uh, many of the people that experience the symptoms have to be in a, in a place of high exposure for a relatively long period of time, and then the symptoms develop and last for a long period of time. Uh, ultimately, usually they go away. But uh, it's not clear that you can really mimic these in a laboratory setting. Mm. Now, let me talk about one of the studies. It was actually done in 1991, a long time ago, by a, a, a person in, in Texas. And he had the concept that in order to really determine whether someone could perceive these fields being on or not on, you needed to uh, accommodate them to a very low background exposure so that you could really test them carefully. And he did that. And he found that there were some people that under no circumstances could distinguish whether fields were on or off. And he attributed this to be a psychological issue that really wasn't EHS. But he found people that could clearly distinguish whether fields were on or not on. But he did also find that some people responded to one frequency of fields 
whereas others responded to different frequencies. So this then becomes a limitation in these well-designed laboratory studies because it was usually only one frequency, often a standard cell phone frequency. Uh, there was a, uh, another study done of a physician that was electrosensitive. Uh, well done. She understood the, the science of doing studies, but she also uh, understood the health effects of concern. And she was particularly sensitive to power line frequencies. So this raises the issue that uh, there's a great variety of individual variation in response. The symptoms are in general the same profile, although not always exactly the same symptoms, the headaches or the photophobia or the ringing in the ears and fatigue. They, they may be in different proportions in different people, but in general, uh, they are seen in multiple people that are electrosensitive. Great. That, yeah, that makes sense. Obviously, there's uh, different frequencies and durations, so it's hard to uh, really capture in a, a single controlled you know, setting in the That's laboratory. Um, and you've also cite evidence like in animal models that, of EMF exposure, who and you can assume negates the nocebo effect. Um, is there clear data there? Well, there's still controversy because <laughs> <laughs> this is a very controversial area. My own judgment is that, uh, you know, animals are unlikely to show a nocebo effect. Uh, and there have been multiple attempts in human studies to show that that is not the case. Uh, not all studies have, have good controls there, but I think many of them do. And now we are beginning to get clinical chemistry indicators that show statistically significant differences by, between uh, control people and individuals that suffer from electrohypersensitivity. Now, I think one needs to make the point, however, that all of us are exposed to these electromagnetic fields every day. We're exposed to different degrees. Uh, we may be showing symptoms that we don't really recognize or identify. Let me tell you a story about my wife. She's always been very skeptical of uh, electrohypersensitivity and electrohypersensitive people. We've had a number of them that have visited our home and she's always thought they're a little crazy, uh, uh, which, you know, you can have crazy people that really are electrosensitive too. But it was interesting because my wife was starting to complain. She was getting ringing in her ears uh, in the evening when she was uh, sitting in her easy chair watching television. And then we went away. Actually, we went to Australia, to Brisbane for a, a month. And she didn't get any ringing in her ears anymore there. We came back, and uh, the ringing in her ears recurred. And I said, well, you know, you're probably electrosensitive. The Wi-Fi router is right by your chair. She still doesn't acknowledge that she's electrosensitive, but she moved the Wi-Fi router to the far end of the room, and she hasn't complained about it anymore. You know, so that leads to this question of, are there subtle things that most of us just take for uh, what happens during the day and pay no attention to? But in some people, and I've met a number of these people, they are so electrosensitive that their whole quality of life is compromised. I've walked down the streets with some people that are electrosensitive, uh, and they can say, oh, I, I feel a, uh, a mobile phone tower. And you look up and there is one. Uh, so I, I've become quite convinced that it's a very real syndrome. I've also uh, met and examined a, a technician that worked for a, a, a company that uh, for Verizon that generates uh, these works on these transmitters, and he had had the experience of going into a facility that had nine different generators, all of which were supposed to be turned off while he worked on them. Turned out that three of them were not turned off. And and after uh, about an hour there, he became nauseous. He felt flushed. He had a terrible headache. Uh, he, just like those old radar operators, developed the full syndrome of electrohypersensitivity. I met him two years later, and he was chronically ill. This was a 30-some-year-old California surfer that clearly had no pre-existing conditions, but that one experience of 
about an hour in a room with uh, elevated microwaves from uh, radio frequency generators caused him to develop this full syndrome. Wow. Frightening. Now, you mentioned before that yeah, there, there have been some biomarkers established in EHS, and this is, as I mentioned, um, Bell Pom's work, and you've been involved in this. Can you run through uh, that research? You know, I think they also looked at brain, brain imaging as well as blood chemistry. That's correct. Uh, the, the, the study which uh, we reported, it's all Bell Pom's work, but the, the problem is there, there's not... Uh, a whole series of things that are absolutely definitive for identifying electrohypersensitive people. He did find one marker, which is uh, looking at metabolites in urine for uh, melatonin and looking at the ratio of, uh, of those metabolites to creatinine. And he was able to distinguish 100% of his subjects that had electrohypersensitivity from those that did not with that assay. But he had other assays, such as uh, uh, having high uh, C-reactive protein, having low vitamin D, having elevated histamine, uh, having elevated uh, uh, interleukin, uh, E, several other things that in about 50% of electrosensitive people were, hot, were different, significantly different from his controls. Now, I get questions all the time from individuals that believe they're electrosensitive and want to have this panel of laboratory tests done. The, the fact, at least here in the U.S., these are not standard laboratory procedures, and therefore most people are frustrated because the only way they can really get them done is to go to Paris to Dr. Belpom's laboratory. Uh, but it's beginning to develop so that we are, can, are able to objectively uh, identify people that are electrosensitive. Now, the brain imaging is another developing area. Uh, first of all, brain imaging is not a trivial thing. It's expensive to get done. Yeah. Uh, but it, and it's unlikely to become a standard uh, clinical test for electrohypersensitivity. But these... These laboratory tests and these brain imaging tests are important because so many people that have, uh, that are, believe that they are electrosensitive, they go to their physician and he refers them to a psychiatrist. There's a general sense in the medical profession that this is not a real disease and that it, it is only psychological. Uh, so as we develop these imaging and clinical chemistry tests, it gives some assurance to individuals that, yes, this is a real disease. I'm just not crazy. Interesting. And with the, the melatonin, that's not just the, a standard melatonin test you can uh, currently uh, acquire, is it? It was a metabolite? No, it is not. Uh, it is yeah, not. Yeah, so we, it, it's not a particularly difficult test, but it's, yeah. it's not a test that is done in a routine clinical chemistry laboratory. Sure. Now, I'm not sure if this is, you know, semantics or not, but do you, do you suspect why the melatonin is low? I've heard views that the the uh, the EMFs act almost like blue light and inhibits our synthesis, and then I've also heard that just it's because of the strong oxidative stress from the EMFs that melatonin is sort of the the vulnerable free free uh, radical scavenger that um, declines in this uh, environment. Um, have you got any views on that? Those. Well, I, I think those are, are two hypotheses. Uh, melatonin is a free radical scavenger, and free radicals clearly play a major role in, the, in this disease. But whether that's the explanation uh, for the disease, I think, is totally unclear. The explanation there, I'm pretty sure, is the, the free radicals. But uh, it may well be that, that the uh, melatonin metabolites in urine are a marker for individuals that uh, that generate excessive free radicals, which then results in uh, more than the usual amount of melatonin being produced by the body. Oh, yeah. Great. Uh, so just back to the brain imaging, what was the some of the results they found there in, in terms of the, the pathology? I, th I think there was like alterations in uh, blood, uh, blood flow to different regions of the brain. Is that correct? 
Well, yes, that is correct. Uh, you know, I, I'd rather not comment <laughs> in great detail there sure. because there have been a number of studies, and usually there's only one or two that that show the same effect. So I think this is an emerging area. Uh, I'm not convinced that I really know the answer yet on the basis of what has been done. Uh, but there are several groups that there uh, there's been evidence for changes in brain blood flow for a long time. Uh, there's there's evidence now. A lot of these are more related to use of mobile phones than to electro hypersensitivity. But there's been a lot of evidence for changes in brain metabolism when uh, there's exposure to mobile phone frequencies. Now, uh, that's a matter of holding an active phone to your head. But if you walk under a street that has cell towers, you're going to get exposure to your head. So all of those things are possible. Changes in blood flow, changes in uh, brain metabolism. There's some suggestion from some studies, again, I'm not saying I believe all of them, that there are actually uh, lesions in parts of the brain in people that are very highly electrosensitive or changes in the anatomy of the brain that are not seen in other people. But this is an early part of investigation. I think the changes in blood flow, the changes in brain metabolism, uh, at least with mobile phone frequencies, that's well established. If you change blood flow in the brain, if you change brain metabolism upon exposure to radiofrequency electromagnetic fields, you certainly can explain then the other symptoms that are primarily related to changes in the central nervous system. Mm. Uh, headache, uh, fatigue, uh, photophobia, ringing in the ears, even changes in heart rhythms. These are all controlled by the brain. So the brain is a primary target of, of these electromagnetic fields. Great. All right. So, yeah, let's acknowledge that it's still an emerging area. Um, that, yeah, and the reason why I'm, I'm pressing this is obviously, I think it helps obviously stimulate um, further questions to do further research. But also, I suppose we, we, do, have, we do have patients now that are, are suspected of EHS and we need some sort of framework to help um, help them, you know, navigate in this world. So just on that, you've got a, uh, like a working model or a hypothesis of how this is all pieced together. Can you run through the sort of suggested pathophysiology then, just to sort of tie it all together? Well, our central hypothesis is that these electromagnetic fields, they're part of the non-ionizing radiation spectrum. In other words, uh, they're not like X-rays or gamma rays or cosmic rays that can directly damage DNA. But they interact with the body to cause the generation of free radicals, or what we call is reactive oxygen species. Now, our body's metabolism normally produces some of these free radicals, and our body has a whole series of enzymes whose main job is to scavenge these three radicals. There is a lot of information that the, the basis of aging is that our bodies are cumulatively damaged by free radical exposures from both our own metabolism and from external sources. So uh, with the brain as the primary target, our central hypothesis is that there is an unusual production of reactive oxygen species in the brains of electrosensitive people, or perhaps a diminution of the scavenging enzymes, so that you get changes in blood flow, you get changes in brain metabolism, uh, you get changes that alter these the, the neural parts of the brain that control things like giving headaches, fatigue. Headache is primarily a, a circulation of the brain issue. But fatigue is certainly a central nervous system tissue. Uh, heart rate is, is uh, controlled by parts of the brain. And then these variety of changes, including changes on ion distribution, ion channels, uh, all result from this unusual sensitivity or unusual development of reactive oxygen species. 
Now, what to do about that? Well, uh, there are many drugs that have been given over the years. Many of the vitamins are vitamins that, that, that counteract reactive oxygen species. But uh, they, there are many roles, and so we don't have at this point any pharmacologic agent that will reduce the symptoms of EHS. Uh, and knowing that reactive oxygen species generation is central doesn't really help because uh, there are too many other things that are involved with uh, reactive oxygen species. It leads to some suggestions of the kind of things that we might develop pharmacologically. Unfortunately, at the present time, the only advice we can give electrosensitive people is to find ways to reduce your exposure. And in our modern world, particularly our urban world, that gets increasingly difficult. We have a global rollout of 5G, the next generation of the uh, Internet of Things. Uh, this is going to result in placement of many cell towers in front of about every fifth or tenth house on every urban street in the world. Uh, because these 5G uh, radio frequency fields don't travel so far, but they're being rolled out without any governments having done a systematic review of whether they have adverse health effects. My assumption, and I think based on reasonably good data, is that uh, the effects of 5G radiation are going to be the same as 3G and 4G and the same as power line frequencies and that it's going to increase exposure and only going to make the severity and the prevalence of electrohypersensitivity worse than greater. Uh, but we're not waiting for there to be health studies. We're just proceeding to roll it out in almost every country in the world. Yeah, it's worrying. Um, what is the current estimated prevalence? I know it's difficult. Um... There's various studies, I believe, but what's your best guess at how frequent this is occurring in, in the population, EHS? Well, in terms of people that are really incapacitated, I think it's like 1% or 2%, not more than that. Yes. Some people have suggested that the actual prevalence may be as high as 10%. Uh, I don't know. That, that seems high to me. Mm. Uh, it is interesting, though, that we're increasingly seeing this syndrome develop in children. <clears throat> and that is very concerning because uh, so much of the evidence, it's still anecdotal, but so much of the evidence that I've seen just by talking with people is that once you become electrosensitive, you never totally reverse that sensitivity. You may learn to live with it. Uh, but that means reducing your exposure, and often that means moving out of a, an area that uh, where exposure is high and going to a remote area where uh, there's, there's much less uh, microwave traffic. Uh, so it's of concern because as, as a whole society, a global society, as we increase exposure to uh, electromagnetic fields of all frequencies – we're going to undoubtedly increase the number of people that exhibit the symptoms of electrohypersensitivity. And at this point, we don't even have good, we have the beginnings of clinical tests and, and brain scanning tests that can distinguish these people from others. But we have absolutely no pharmacologic agents to, that are specific for this disease. So it's of great concern as exposure increases. So just to circle back to the, the diagnosis, so really it's a, a, almost a diagnosis of exclusion and a, a working diagnosis, and perhaps you need a, a therapeutic trial um, trying to uh, minimise exposure. Maybe it's a, it's a weekend away camping or something to really, uh, I suppose, create that, that connection. Is, yeah, is, do you have any other advice on top of that? Well, I, I think that's good advice, and that's exactly what uh, Dr. Ray in this uh, the study that he did in 1991 did. He took people in, in a remote area and, and uh, accommodated them, and most of them had their symptoms dramatically reduced after a, a week or so uh, 
living away from exposure. But, you know, that's, again, not realistic for mm. people to go about their, their normal life and, and go out and live on the top of a mountain somewhere. Uh, we've got to find better ways of, of controlling exposure. Uh, you know, there's so many things that, that could be done, but nobody seems to have had the motivation to do them. Uh, fiber optics can carry signals that we don't have to use radio frequency fields for. Now, fiber optics can power your internet. You don't have to use your cell phone. Uh, uh, but, uh, you know, it's a little less convenient. It, the, the fiber optics go to a particular site. You can't carry it with you. But uh, using wired uh, computers, using a landline for a, a telephone, all of these things will dramatically reduce exposure. Now, on the other hand, if we put uh, little mini cell towers or mobile phone towers uh, or masts on in front of every every fifth or sixth house, uh, then you simply can't be in that neighborhood without being constantly exposure, exposed. You can't walk down the sidewalk. Uh, so this, this movement uh, that we have in every country in the world ignores the issues related to electro-hypersensitivity. To some degree, they ignore the issues related to uh, EMF-induced cancer, which, for which there is uh, much less controversy, but it's, it's still a controversial subject. But uh, I, I do fear that we're going to increasingly see uh, greater and greater, greater prevalence of electro-hypersensitivity because our exposure is continually increasing. Uh, we need to get the medical profession to understand that this is a real disease, not just a psychological disease. It's related to a whole series of other diseases, uh, things like multiple chemical sensitivity, chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia. I've been involved in study of Gulf War illness, which is a, a an illness where veterans of the 1990-91 Gulf War in Kuwait uh, developed a, a, a syndrome very much like electrohypersensitivity. Fatigue, headaches, weakness, muscle and joint pain. Uh, nobody quite knows what caused it, but it may have been uh, a whole variety of things, in, including uh, pesticides and uh, depleted uranium, a whole variety of things. But we're seeing a, a, a combination of, of diseases with nonspecific symptoms. The initiating cause may be different, but the central nervous system mechanisms and the physiology and pathophysiology in the body of these various syndromes uh, may very well be common. Uh, we need to take these, these uh, characterized diseases seriously and not just pass them off as being psychosomatic. Uh, it's very clear that, that they are not all psychosomatic. Now, that's not to deny that some people may blame some exposure that isn't the real cause of their symptoms. But electrohypersensitivity is real, and these other similar diseases are also real. They've actually been studied more and have been better accepted than electrohypersensitivity. Yeah, absolutely. And hopefully in the future, we do get biomarkers that can more definitively uh, diagnose EHS that as much as you can yeah, rule people in, you might be able to rule people out, as you mentioned, that it could be psychosomatic or other causes. Um, so just quickly on to the other areas, and this is something you've also um, been involved in, is the environmental toxicity, which is unfortunately probably not any more uh, optimistic. Um also, there is, seems to be those canary in the coal mine type people that are sensitive to chemicals, so that M, uh, MSC, the, or, sorry, MCS, multiple chemical sensitivity. Um, can you just give a, a little bit of a, a background on, on those people? Well, multiple chemical sensitivity has actually been described for a longer period of time, but also has been uh, passed off as, as uh, being questionably real. Uh, it's a syndrome where people are unusually sensitive to a variety of chemicals. It varies from person to person. 
Uh, one class of chemicals that are, are very commonly thought to trigger multiple chemical sensitivity are perfumes and scents and odors. Uh, chemicals put in laundry detergent or dishwater soap to make smell. And, and some people react violently to those and can't be in a room with uh, someone that's wearing perfumes of a certain sort. Uh, Well-documented and very reproducible among the same individuals. So they, uh, they develop fatigue, they develop headaches, they develop uh, sometimes itching and, and, uh, and uh, gastrointestinal pain. Uh, rather nonspecific symptoms, very much like those with EHS. Uh, there is no uh, solution or treatment for multiple chemical sensitivity other than avoiding exposure, very similar to EHS. Dr. Belpom and his group that have long studied uh, these class of diseases, which are usually referred to under the general rubric of environmental intolerance, and he finds that many of the biomarkers that uh, distinguish people with EHS also will distinguish those people that have multiple chemical sensitivity. And all of us that have worked in this area find that it's very common for someone that has EHS to also have multiple chemical sensitivity. Or in the case of the studies I've really personally been involved in on Gulf War illness, extremely common to find that people that suffer from Gulf War illness, which affected about 40% of the U.S. service personnel that was in that very brief war in 1991, if they suffer from Gulf War illness, that they often also suffer from multiple chemical sensitivity. And most of them haven't been tested for EHF. But there's a commonality of these diseases. Some indication that that's true also with fibromyalgia. We know a little more about the mechanisms of fibromyalgia because it seems to involve the, the sensory nerves in the skin uh, primarily. Uh, there's no evidence that that's the case for electrohypersensitivity or multiple chemical sensitivity, but the projections in the central mechanisms may well be the same. Interesting. Do you think... Um there, hopefully in the future, there will be identifications of vulnerable groups like the HLA genotypes linked with, obviously, celiac disease and even um, uh, mold sensitivity. Do you suspect there might be some sort of genetic or epigenetic component to this? Absolutely. Uh, the more we look about almost any disease, we find that there's a genetic susceptibility to that disease that some people have and other people don't have. Uh, and as I said earlier, clearly we're all exposed to radio frequency fields or EMFs of, of whatever frequency. And most of us don't identify uh, illnesses that result from that. Why do some people uh, have them? It may well be that they are genetically vulnerable. Now, there is already evidence uh, I mentioned earlier the childhood leukemia from exposure to power lines. There's evidence that uh, has come from uh, some, I believe, a, a Chinese laboratory, that there's a epigenetic re uh, change responsible for the unusual sensitivity of some children to develop leukemia after exposure, whereas other children with the same exposure but lacking that, that uh, epigenetic change uh, are not as vulnerable. Interesting. Uh, so just to sort of recap um, for clinicians obviously practicing now, what are some of the, the cardinal signs and symptoms you've, you've covered? It? Is that mostly just the, the use of uh, wireless technology for the EHS and, um, you know, strong smells are often a, a cardinal sign or trigger for... Uh, the, the chemical sensitivity. So, yeah, any sort of broad, um, broad stroke suggestions about look on the lookout, being on the lookout for these in uh, practitioners' uh, patients? Well, I think the uh, it's pretty much what you said. The symptoms are quite consistent. Now, 
it is interesting that EHS in adults is seen much more commonly in women than men. But then women tend to go to see their physician more commonly than men. Men tend to be more stoic and not complain. But that doesn't mean that they're less vulnerable. But when a patient comes to see a physician that complains of headache and fatigue and ringing in the ears and uh, these other nonspecific symptoms, they should be taken seriously and not just the physician just should not just assume that they are not real symptoms, real signs of a, a significant exposure either to chemicals or to uh, electromagnetic fields and should uh, advise them. Ex First of all, both physicians and patients need to know that this is a characterized and and clearly identified profile of, of uh, complaints and that there is something that one can do about it. it may not be ideal because there's no pill you can take to relieve symptoms. But if you identify that this is due to exposure to radio frequency fields, you can turn off the Wi-Fi. You can use a landline rather than a cell phone. You can avoid going to places where there's intense Wi-Fi. Uh, check to see if a trip to uh, the mountains on a camping trip for a week or two, does that reduce your symptoms? Uh, if it does, then it may well be that exposure to radio frequency fields is the trigger of those, those symptoms. Of course, it'd be good for all of us to take a two-week camping trip <laughs> in the woods. And, uh, you know, it's very difficult to separate the psychological from, yeah. the, from the real. But those are really about the only advice I can give on how to identify uh, the, the reality in any individual patient. Sure. And then you could probably switch to fragrance-free dishwashing detergents, et cetera, for the, the chemical sensitivity? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, be aware of all the things that contain chemicals that don't need to be added. Uh, Fragrances are a particular source, but they're by no means the only ones. But re re reduce those from your common, ordinary uses. Uh, don't spray fragrances around the house. Don't buy fragrances and soaps and, and personal care products. Uh, forget the perfumes for a little while. And, uh, and, you know, if your symptoms are reduced, then adjust your lifestyle so that you are less dependent on those things. Sure. Okay, and now while we've got you here, I just wanted to quickly ask about, you've also looked into, I suppose, more frank toxicity, and I see you've published with arguably one of the world-leading researchers in, in Dukli on, I suppose, yeah, more, um, as I said, higher levels, if you want to call it that, exposure and chronic diseases like diabetes. Can you just give us a snapshot of what you've looked at with environmental toxins and the results there? Well, this is my personal research, uh, much more than anything about EHS is. Uh, I'm interested in exposure to chemicals and their influence on the risk of developing chronic diseases. Uh, I've done a lot of work with polychlorinated biphenyls, PCBs, chlorinated pesticides like DDT, uh, dioxins, and uh, the, the story with diabetes is very interesting because we've shown for a, a long time ago that, that diabetes, that even high blood pressure, that heart disease uh, is more common in people that have elevated body burdens of polychlorinated biphenols. Now, PCBs are man-made chemicals. We all have them in our bodies. They've concentrated in our food supply. Uh, so... Uh, and, but they're persistent. In other words, our bodies can't remove them very rapidly. So, and that's one of the reasons we all have them in our bodies. And so insofar as uh, people have known that if you take a blood sample and measure these chemicals, you find a relation to these diseases, they all assumed that it was the PCBs that stay in our bodies that cause the problems. Well, PCBs are actually a group of chemicals. There are 209 different individual chemicals and they can have anywhere from one to 10 different chlorines. When they have 10 chlorines, they're very fat soluble. They don't go in the air. They're not very water soluble. When they only have one or two or three or four chlorines, 
They're more volatile. They're more water-soluble. But they don't stay in the body very long. So what our work with diabetes recently has shown is that it's not the ones that are, are more persistent in the body that are associated with diabetes. It's the ones that are more volatile but less persistent in the body. And this argues that rather than diet being the biggest root of exposure, it's the PCBs in the air that we breathe in. Right. Now, the concentration in the air is not terribly high, but we breathe 24-7, 365 days a year. And if we live near a place like a hazardous waste site that contains these chemicals, or if you lived in an old home that has these chemicals in some of the, the products in the home, like the caulking around the window, the ballast in the old fluorescent light bulbs, even in paint or wall uh, floor finishing, then we can be breathing these things continuously. So uh, while for most chemical exposures, we've always focused on diet, mm. and I don't min- mean to minimize diet as a root of exposure. I think our recent results on a whole variety of related diseases suggest that inhalation of chemicals is a very important route of exposure and may, in certain cases, be more important, at least for certain diseases, than the PCBs that are in the food we eat. Wow. So has there been uh, research showing these um, volatile PCB burden correlates with diabetes irrespective of like BMI? Well, uh, yes, and the BMI diabetes connection is very interesting because uh, in fact, in this, we've, we've studied uh, Native American population primarily. And what we find is that uh, yes, uh, obesity does increase the risk of diabetes, but less so in the very obese people. But the uh, relation of PCB level to diabetes is quite linear across the board. Now, also, there was a very interesting study reported by Dr. Lee, who is uh, from Korea, but used the U.S. and Haines data set. She looked at very obese people uh, and asked, did they or did they not have diabetes? And what she found is that very obese people that did not have high levels of PCBs and other organochlorines were at no elevated risk of diabetes. Mm. But as the obese people had more and higher and higher levels of these chemicals, then almost all of them developed diabetes. So, you know, I, I, review, I see that as the reason most people are obese is that they eat too much. There are other factors as well. But these chemicals like PCBs are in all animal fats. So if you eat fatty beef a lot, you're going to get exposure. If you're obese for reasons other, you get obese because you eat too many nuts, which have fat, but they have very low PCBs. Those people can be obese, but not at at particularly high risk of developing diabetes. Wow. Yeah, it's it's a shame, I suppose, that there's things you can control, your diet, et cetera, and activity, but unfortunately you don't really have much control in the air you breathe or the, the Wi-Fi, et cetera, you're exposed to, which hopefully over time with public health can maybe change that, but I suspect it's going to be a long time before those things really occur. Um, so just on that, there was, uh, I recall a while ago, I think Duckley and, and Jacobs, I think, was the other author that identified elevated uh, GGT, is a gamma-glutamyl transferase enzyme, as a, a, a biomarker of toxin exposure. Is that, um, can you give an update on that? Is that still the case? Or I'm essentially asking for clinicians, like, how do, can we screen anyway for this? I know toxins are a little bit hard to, to measure as well. Well, that's a good study that they did, and it was the same Dookie Lee that I was mentioning that did the original diabetes study. Uh, I don't think that observation has been replicated in other laboratories, but I think it's a, a well-done study and, and uh is a useful biomarker. Uh, is it absolutely definitive? No, I don't think it is. But it's, uh, again, like these things that Belpom has developed for EHS, it's another factor that should be used clinically 
to uh, identify risks for chronic diseases. Great. So, yeah, obviously, we still want to encourage a healthy um, diet and lifestyle, but we have to be cognizant that perhaps there's uh, elements outside of that that could be really playing on our patient's health and um, be mindful there might be some biomarkers to do, to, to, to perform, or, or these therapeutic trials as well, something to consider. Um, well, thank you for sharing all your insights into all the frightening areas of um, toxins. <laughs> um, you got any message of hope you want to give us? Well, my students tell me that what I tell them is dangerous to breathe the air, eat the food, drink the water. We're all going to die. <laughs> but I tell them, well, <laughs> I, I don't mean to have such a grim message, but it would be like it would be ideal if we could delay the dying for as long as possible and in the meantime suffer as little as possible. Yeah. We can't avoid exposure to any of these things completely, but we do have some ability to control the level of our exposure. And the first step in that is knowledge of what exposure causes. And then we can adjust our lifestyles, at least to some degree, to reduce exposure. Great. Um, and it's obviously a minefield out there for, for clinicians looking for reliable resources. Is there any sort of areas or bodies you recommend people could keep track of for you know, accurate and reliable and hopefully actionable information? Well, there, there's a, a lot of information on electromagnetic fields. I would refer people to the Bioinitiative yeah. Report. I was co-editor of that report first published in 2007, updated in 2012. It's encyclopedic. It's more than ever you wanted to know, but it's available at www.bioinitiative.org. Uh, it, it, the last version was 2012. There's a lot more information since then. Uh, information that comes from governments in general, in my judgment, is unreliable because Governments have not taken this issue seriously. Even the, the standards in most governments, including both Australia and the U.S., are not protective against cancer to say anything of EHS. But uh, there is a body of information. The Bioinitiative Report is probably a good place to start. Uh, I have published several reviews. I'm always happy to provide those to people that are interested. And... Uh, there are a number of advocacy organizations, but again, you know, advocacy can be two sides, and mm. I, I would urge people to look for credible publications in peer-reviewed literature uh, before jumping on uh, taking the word of advocacy organizations without critical attention. Yeah. That's true on either side of the issue. Yeah, yeah, exactly like most things. So, yes, I just want to extend my thanks for you to come on today and we had a few technology issues and yeah i mean this is ironic that we're relying on our our cell or mobile phones to um do skype and we're living in this world but yeah, we have to be mindful as well of these exposures but as i said it's uh it was great that you're yeah, very objective and balanced and got a level head about this so, uh, yeah unfortunately it's probably not the the most uh, positive message but you know th there's things we can start looking for and actioning right now so, uh, Professor Carpenter, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate your d helping deal with our technological issues. <laughs> uh, but I enjoyed talking with you. Great. Well, it worked well in the end. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast. Find us on iTunes and leave a review. Join our practitioner-only Metagenics Facebook group to be informed of new podcast releases, keep up to date with key industry updates, and more. Visit metagenics.com.au to find useful links and resources relating to this podcast and sign up for our e-newsletter.